The unofficial end to summer is here. School has started for most, football season is upon us, and soon the leaves will be changing color. At the DSR Network, we remain as busy as ever with a full slate of podcasts scheduled for the fall. In the coming weeks, we'll be launching two new shows with new hosts, creating even more content for our members. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, bonus content, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of September, you'll receive 20% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SCHOOL at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SCHOOL. Thank you for your support. Hi, I'm Riley Fressler, producer for the DSR Network of Podcasts. Today's From the Silo is an episode of The Secret Life of Cookies, where Marissa is joined by Barbara McQuaid to break down the January 6th hearings and Barbara shares how to make a reluctant witness talk. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Hello, and welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies. Today's episode features former U.S. attorney and MSNBC legal analysis royalty, Barbara McQuaid. We recorded this Friday morning about 10 hours after the end of the primetime January 6th hearing. What a hearing. Am I right? We both stayed up late watching, and then we got up early to talk about it. So I hope you enjoyed this in-depth conversation as much as I did. Now, this episode has bonus content only for subscribers to the Deep State Radio Network. I wish everything in the world could be free, but becoming a member isn't expensive and has many benefits, including ad-free listening and bonus content on all the Deep State Radio podcasts. We know not everyone is able to pay extra for a subscription, so we appreciate it if you can, but do what you can. Thank you. Hello, Barbara McQuaid, and welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies on this. It's Friday. I think it's July 22nd. I really have no idea. And um, it's most important thing is it's Joyce Vance's birthday today. It is. I've already, <laughs> sent, uh, I've already sent a gift. <laughs> but I thought we'd be baking cookies for her today in case she doesn't get the cake of her dreams. Before we get into, I guess, recapping last night's Love Island episode. Um, <laughs> We will be making a very, very intense, I'm making a very intense chocolate, chocolate cookie that has, Mm. it's a very thick cookie. It's filled with white chocolate, peanut butter chips, and dark chocolate chips. Wow. That sounds like quite a cookie. Yeah, it is quite a cookie. And you know what? That Joyce Vance, she's quite a cookie. (laughs) (laughs) Joyce is like, oh my gosh. Joyce does send you fond greetings and believes in your she said she believes in your baking capability. No, just so I've you know. no, I have none <laughs> and, and I have no interest in any, but I do enjoy eating. So um, I'll, I'll take it there. Just know people who can bake then or know where the grocery yeah. store is. So last night there were these uh, congressional hearings and I wondered if anything 
surprising other than Josh Hawley's beautiful gazelle-like game. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, that, that one was funny, wasn't it? That was like not really all that important to, you know, any crimes or anything, but it was like, like, like delicious karma. <laughs> it was just so beautiful. Yeah. And a little dig, that, you know, a serious dig that he was out there pumping his fist, uh-huh. being protected by the police. Well, he was also inciting people to run over the police and yeah. get into the Capitol building. Um, so I've and he turned into a meme. It may be the fastest meme that ever happened on the Internet, I think. <laughs> they had to know that was going to happen, right? Yeah, they had to. I mean, it was beautifully done. But other than that, was there anything that popped out to you last night that made you think, hey, yeah. or whatever sound you make when you discover something? <laughs> Yeah, actually, there's. I, I thought some um, some really interesting new things that we learned last night that were, I think, really important too. And you know, if it feels like, how can we still be learning new things, right? I mean, after all this time. But I thought a couple of things that were super interesting. You know, one is Adam Kinzinger framed that hearing last night as Trump did not fail to take action; Trump chose not to take action. And exactly. I think then all of the evidence kind of built on that frame. And one thing that was new to me that I hadn't really thought about before that was so interesting was the fact that he did not record that video asking people to go home until after it was apparent that the physical attack had failed. So mm-hmm. I thought that was a really interesting point because I, you know, I kind of previously thought, well, he dragged his feet maybe, or he wasn't mm-hmm. aware of how dire it was. You know, there are all kinds of ways to spin that, but you know, they're begging and begging and begging and begging, and then only like, okay, it appears they've got it under control. Now he decides to to record the video. And then, you know, until then, not only was he refusing to do something, we heard Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General, say Trump was the commander in chief and he did nothing, zero. He seemed incredulous at that. And then we heard about, you know, these two witnesses, Matthew Pottinger on the National Security Council mm-hmm. and Sarah Matthews, a communications professional, who said, you know, not only was he refusing these, the pleading to, to please do something to stop it, he then tweets that 224 tweet that Pence didn't have the courage to do his duty. And as, as Sarah Matthew said, that poured gas on the fire. Not, not only did he fail to take action or choose not to take action, he actually took an affirmative action that made it worse. So I, I thought that was very interesting. And then, of course, the, um, the stuff that was occurring at the Capitol that was a little different that we hadn't heard before, where you know, as Pence is being spirited out of there, we, we'd already seen that backstairs video mm-hmm. of him coming out. And I thought, okay, you know, they got him out of the way. But what we hadn't seen before is what was going on in the second floor, the floor he had to go past. And the agent we saw last night says, all right, I'll check it out and I'll see what's going on down there. They're getting really close and you could hear them. And you can see, you know, that, that female officer's voice says, you know, we've got six officers between us, but then the, the, the mob is starting to grow. There are five people here now, and now there are more, and there's some unknown smoke and gas. And they kind of decide it's now or never, you know, we got to get them out. That's not the greatest, but if we don't act now, we're not going to act. And that agents are radioing in and saying, say goodbye to my loved ones. Like they didn't think they were going to get out of there alive. I thought that was really powerful. I thought that was really powerful too. And for all that I am like Donald Trump's biggest non-fan, right? Like I <laughs> loathe him in probably- A lot of competition every- for that. I don't know, Marissa. <laughs> I don't know what I'm thinking. But, you know, I've, I've, being a New Yorker, I've known about him for a long time. So I've had a lot of hate yeah. building up over the years. Sure. But there's mm-hmm. something about like my own naive sense that made me think, well, come on, maybe 
he was he's just that clueless guy. But to find like to hear so much evidence how willful his inactivity was, yeah, was shocking to me. And to you wrote a piece, I think it was earlier this week that had a very catchy headline and a very interesting thought, which was, do you think it's possible to convict Donald Trump of manslaughter or would he be responsible for involuntary manslaughter? I think you could. And boy, based on what we heard last night, I think the case has only gotten stronger. You know, there has been kind of a trend that we've seen, at least here in my state of Michigan, where everybody mm-hmm. wants to criminalize every bad act by a like a public official. We mm-hmm. had our former governor, Rick Snyder, charged criminally with misdemeanor offenses for neglect of duty related to the Flint water crisis. And although I think he he was you know a terrible administrator and did made some really awful decisions, I don't think it amounts to a crime because I think a crime requires criminal intent that there mm-hmm. was something bad and I you know I did it on purpose and I knew that. Similarly, there's been arguments that our current governor Gretchen Whitmer should be charged with crimes for bad policy decisions about sending people to nursing homes during COVID that eventually led to their deaths. You know, like maybe a bad decision, but not a criminal decision. But what Trump did is very different. And again, I come mm-hmm. back to the way Adam Kinzinger framed this. It wasn't just a failure, you know, like a bad choice, a bad decision, ordinary negligence. He chose not to act. He was the person who could have stopped this. He's the commander in chief of the armed forces and could have called up the National Guard. And he did not. He could have walked. What did she say? Like 10 steps to get to the yeah. White House briefing room and done a video that they could put out instantly saying, go home. And he chose not to do that. He could have tweeted and said, go home. But not only did he not tweet, go home, he did tweet, Pence has failed us. Trump, Pence has failed to, which you know poured gasoline on the fire, as she said. So you know the elements of manslaughter under federal law is, you know, one, a death occurs at a federal building, federal property. So we've got that. Five people die that day. There's four more yep. suicides you might be able to attribute, but probably not able to establish causation there. But the elements in addition are, that there is an act or omission that causes death. And that was done with the mens rea of failure to take due care, which I would say in this context requires gross negligence. And so I think Mm -hmm. the question comes down to, did he have a duty to act? Yes. Did he fail to take that duty? Yes. And was death reasonably foreseeable? They showed us what he could see on, he's watching Fox and they showed us the clips from Fox. People are like breaking (laughs) down windows. They're coming in the door. He knows they have weapons. The idea that, you know, a police officer is going to have to shoot one of these people, very reasonably foreseeable. The idea Mm -hmm. that someone would be trampled to death as she was, reasonably foreseeable. The the idea Mm -hmm. that someone would have a medical emergency and they wouldn't be able to get to them in time, reasonably foreseeable. I think you could make a case for manslaughter here. And so I don't know whether they will, you know, it may fail to encompass the, I don't know if it's greater, but equally repugnant crime of allowing our democracy, attacking our democracy. But it doesn't have to be an either or. You can have a, and both in uh, <laughs> charge it, you know, as, as just uh, five additional counts in an indictment. But, man, I think of any uh, crimes became clear last night. It's this obstruction of an official proceeding because he wasn't doing nothing. Marissa, he was That's on right. the phone. He's talking to Giuliani and he's talking to senators saying, let's use this to our advantage to continue to, to delay this proceeding. Boy, right. If that's not obstruction of an official proceeding, I don't know what is. Right. And Giuliani gets on the phone afterwards. And says, hi, I'm calling on behalf of the president. Hey, buddy boy, let's do us do us a little favor here. Yeah, do us a solid. Right. And this is 
talking about doing a solid, like while the capital is yeah. not literally, but figuratively burning. It's just right? so obscene. It's just so disgusting. Um, um, and I, but they're all I think about winning. They're all about winning. And I just read uh, this morning that friends of theirs, Bill Barr, what's his face, Roe, and Steve Wynn is, are thinking of starting a PAC or have started a PAC to preserve electoral states' rights. Yeah, to oh. set election laws. And, oh and you know, it's, it's what's the name of it? Restoring trust and integrity in elections back. I'm going to call yeah, myself you know, the queen of Twitter and maybe it'll be so. <laughs> well, you know, that is a bit how disinformation works. If you exactly say right. it and you repeat it fre- fre- frequently enough, and if you get some credible proxies to repeat it, People will believe it. I don't know if you saw there was a video on on Twitter. I saw it this morning, but apparently it was last night. You know, Michael Fantone, one of the officers who was injured, and he testified at the first hearing, and he has been showing up at these other hearings to, you know, support the officers who were injured and and others, and he's keenly interested in it. As he is walking out of the Capitol last night, he is accosted by protesters who say, are you even a real police officer? Why are you lying? You know, all kinds of stuff like that. They appear to be ordinary people. I don't know. Uh, but man, the idea that after all of this, there are still people who believe these lies. It's so disturbing. Yeah, I heard uh, an interview with someone on NPR this morning, and it was a guy saying, well, I think all of this is real. It's a fake trial. It's not real. Yeah. And 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 none of the stuff they're showing us is real. And terrifying to think that these people are living in cloud cuckoo land, but everyone is in their own little world. And I don't know. I think there are people I, I hate when people say, well, there there's certain group of people who are never going to change their mind because I always feel, well, of course you can change people's mind because, you know, I'm a journalist. And, and if I say the right thing, it's going to make someone go, oh, yeah. wow. And I don't think that's possible. Do you? No, I think, well, I think there are some, and I think those are the people, you know, you hear Liz Cheney is constantly beating this drum about, I know this is hard to hear. <laughs> you know, it's the way you talk to crime victims who have been duped by someone they trust. People who are um, victims of fraud oftentimes don't want to believe it. I know it's hard to hear, but, and so you're trying to persuade them. And also, you know, you can't have freedom without information. You can't have, you, you have to choose freedom or lies. And I think she is trying to persuade those who are persuadable. But, you know, one of these strongman tactics is divide the world into two and only two tribes. And you're either for me or you're against me. And it doesn't matter what the facts are because you're mm-hmm. on my team. And my, te- my team is the team of good and the team of Jesus. And the other team is evil and the devil. And they're all pedophiles. And so the ends justify the means. And I think mm-hmm. there are people who fought into that and they don't care what these facts are. And they're not going to believe them. It's all fabricated because our dear leader would never do any of those bad things. Right. Of course not. Uh, which is the strangest. I can't even, I, I can't conceive of people thinking that way, but, yeah. but it is very black and white. So manslaughter on paper would be something that's provable to me. Dereliction of duty, the new DOD, you know, is really, really came out singing last night as just willful dereliction of duty, but I'm no lawyer. Yeah, but not a crime. You know, dereliction of duty is, is, you know, that's a great thing to impeach somebody on. 
Great okay. thing. <laughs> uh, and boy, if only we had had an impeachment of Donald Trump. Oh yeah, we did. did. Um, oh, wait, if, only if only people knew, <laughs> if only people knew back then what he, oh yeah, they did, but they, they chose to remain silent. Can you imagine if Pat Cipollone or even Sarah Matthews or Matthew Pottinger or Cassidy Hutchinson or any of these people that are now being framed as heroes had come forward and told us some of this stuff back then, he could have been convicted after his impeachment and the Senate could have voted to never allow him to hold office again. That would have been a very good way to hold him accountable. Uh, Instead, Mitch McConnell said at the time, well, we have a Justice Department. They can charge him with crime. Well, okay, let's go, Merrick Garland. Um, And I'm not one of these people who thinks Merrick Garland is sitting on his hands. I think they're, they're on it. And it just, you know, it takes far more time to make out a criminal case than to just show a one-sided story at a committee hearing. But I think they're going to get there. And I think dereliction of duty, you know, again, when you're looking at a crime, you have to find a statute that's on the books, not just really awful, profoundly awful behavior, but some statute that has been violated. And the ones that come to mind, manslaughter. But I also think obstruction of an official proceeding is right there. He's trying to stop this proceeding of the joint session of Congress to certify this vote through vigilante justice. Like Mm -hmm. you just can't do that. The time to challenge it was in court, which he did. You failed. It's over. By December 14th, the electors have voted. It's over. Fake electors is not the way to challenge, uh, legitimately (laughs) challenge an election. So it's over. Conspiracy to fraud the United States. I think that's a possibility as we look at, you know, his efforts to pressure Brad Raffensperger and pressure Rusty Bowers in Arizona and Mm -hmm. solicit fake slates of electors. I think that one's there. And then the other one that I, I hope and believe the Justice Department is investigating is seditious conspiracy which requires force, the use of force to oppose the authority of the United States government. We've got those Oath Keepers and Proud Boys charged with that crime because they did agree in advance. You know, that wasn't a organic, let's just, uh, we we got a little out of hand and we decided to go in and um, (laughs) exercise our First Amendment rights. It was a planned formation, stacks, strategy, weapons stored outside the city limits. If you can tie Trump to that one, mm-hmm. then you can charge him with seditious conspiracy. And that's a very, very serious crime. It is the closest thing we have to treason during peacetime. And I think they might get there. You know, they have flipped four Oath Keepers, DOJ has. They've obtained the phones of Stuart Rhodes, who's the head of the Oath Keepers, and Enrique Terrio, who's the head of the Proud Boys. And we know that Roger Stone had this Friends of Stone group chat. Mm-hmm. If we can connect those up, now that, that might get you into the Willard Hotel war room, which might be able to connect. Trump up to an agreement to use force against the Capitol. And so that might get there. But but any of these crimes, frankly, will do. Yeah, anything. I'm really They're happy. They're all pretty bad. <laughs> They're all of them up there. One of the interesting things, and this is just a little aside, but I um, didn't go to school to become a lawyer. I am not a lawyer. But I feel that in the past four or five years, I've had a pre-law education. Like I could go possibly work in some sort of <laughs> law firm. Yeah. Maybe just at the front desk, but I know everything from mens rea to um, yeah. my Latin's gotten a lot better. You've been a U.S. attorney. You're a University of Michigan law professor. That you probably have some passion for the law. You also have become sort of MSNBC legal pundit royalty, right? <laughs> like <laughs> I I don't remember a time in my life where so many lawyers have been on TV trying to explain what's going on in our country. Yeah, I think it is an interesting moment where there is so much crazy going on. During, <laughs> is, you know, that, would, is that Latin? Crazy? Yeah, that's a legal <laughs> term of art, <laughs> jargon. 
Well, you know, during the Trump administration, there was so much chaos every day. And I, I think that people want to make sense of it. They want to understand it. It just seems so strange. There's politics and there's hyperbole. And then there's the law. What, you know, yeah. what, and, and, and I think most people care about the rule of law and want to understand how can this be okay? How can this be legal? And so, you know, I see my role as trying to explain. I know there are a lot of people on cable TV who like to hyperventilate and, you know, <laughs> spout opinions and get people riled up. And I try to stay calm. Once in a while, I, you know, express something strongly, but I really just want to help explain. You know, Rachel Maddow says it is the mission of her show to add to the amount of useful information that exists in the world. I like mm-hmm. that motto. And, you know, I see my, I, I'm a law professor. I see my job as uh, public education. And to the extent I can help people understand what is meant by mens rea or stare decisis, or, you know, like, you know, a great example, I think, of where explanation of the law can be very helpful. When Rudy Giuliani was searched, he was outraged that thugs had come and raided <laughs> his phone and taken his phone and seized them. And to explain like what it takes to get that, it means a judge has found a probable cause to believe evidence of a specific crime will be found on those phones. To even ask a judge for that at the Justice Department, it requires approval at the highest levels, which was during the Trump administration that these phones were seized. And so the idea that Rudy Giuliani is somehow balks at people, thugs taking away his phones is just remarkable to me, right? This idea. It, had he never done that to anyone himself? <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. done it himself a thousand times or more. He knows that. And he's just trying to generate outrage. He's trying to get people riled up to think, wow, look at this. This is a political crusade. And so, you know, I, I see my my job is just to try to explain, no, this is how it's done. Jeffrey Clark did the same thing. They made me stand outside in my pajamas <laughs> while they raided my house because yeah, they had a search warrant. And, <laughs> and it doesn't happen on their own. A, a, a judge, you know, an objective independent member of the judiciary looked at this and said, yeah, you've got probable cause. I authorize you to go get that thing. So anyway, that's how I I see my role is just trying to help people make sense and understand this so that they can form their own opinions. But, you know, by having some facts and some knowledge about how the law works so that they can put it into perspective. Yeah. I found it extraordinarily helpful to have you and people like people like you and Joyce. And of course, you know, I didn't really give you a, a good introduction on this podcast, but you are also one of the co-hosts of one of my favorite podcasts, which is Sisters in Law. Oh, thank you. That that is the best like time I spend walking the dog on <laughs> the weekend, <laughs> listening to you figure it all out. Yeah, thank you. You know, it's actually become kind of therapy for all of us. We record late Friday afternoons, and it's a really I've really come to look forward to our conversations because it's really a chance to just try to process all the really bizarre things that happen in the news. It's a nice reality check. I have so much respect for the others. Kimberly Atkins Store, who's a columnist with the Boston Globe and a lawyer, Jill Wine-Banks, who is a former Watergate prosecutor and has some really great historical perspective on some of these things. And Joyce Vance, of course, who's a former U.S. attorney who I've known for a long time. It's really nice to get their perspective because sometimes I think, am I the only one seeing this? In some ways it's affirming, but in other ways, sometimes there are things that we may have differences of opinion. I thought something was a big deal or not a big deal and they have a different view. And so mm-hmm. it's useful to, you know, just sort of get a reality check from <laughs> smart people who I respect. <laughs> exactly. I thought one of the interesting things last night was these sort of odd, playful, almost gotcha moments that they offered up where it's like Liz Cheney sort of waggled her finger at Kevin McCarthy, you know, and was like, and if anybody's listening to Kevin McCarthy out there, let me just make a point to you. Or um, Jared taking a shower instead mm. while Rome was burning, which I yeah. guess. Yeah, yeah. 
they do, they do love to throw in these little tidbits, I think, just to, I don't know, smear the other side. But I do think it does add to the narrative a little bit that, you know, what, what's going on. You know, the other one that we heard was Eric Hirschman. Well, we finally got Trump to uh, do that video. It's about 410. Oh, we're just drained. So we went home. Oh, poor you. Are you kidding me? People are literally dying at the Capitol. And these police officers, you know, I think there's a tendency to minimize the ones who didn't die. They went through some really serious trauma that day. There are four committed suicide in the weeks that followed that. I mean, they, they absolutely thought they were going to die. They are in hand-to-hand combat for hours. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're not really equipped for that. They're used to crowd control with peaceful protests and how mm-hmm. to deal with that. But as um, you know, the officer who testified a while back uh, said, this was like a war zone. I'm not equipped for that. I'm not trained for that. I, I couldn't believe mm-hmm. what I saw. And so I think some of those contrasting tidbits are really important. You know, the other thing that Liz Cheney has been doing, in addition to talking to people like their, you know, crime victims, is she keeps using words to kind of invite people in. You know, like mm-hmm. the dam is starting to break. Witnesses keep coming to us all the time. You know, we were only going to have uh, right. the initial seven. Um, then we had eight. We're going to have more in the fall, and we're going to use August to continue to collect evidence. So, you know, which side do you want to be on? Which side of history? Do you want to be on which side of the law do you want to be on? You want to be a witness? You want to be a defendant? Come on in. You know, people like Kevin McCarthy or Mark Meadows, which sure would be great to hear their testimony. I thought one of the most powerful things we've heard, and it wasn't new, but we got we heard it again, is the congresswoman who overheard Kevin McCarthy's phone call with Donald Trump, where he's, you know, please, right. you know, they're so upset. You got to help us. They're well, maybe they care a little more about the outcome of the election than you do, Kevin. Wow. He's <laughs> taking the side of the insurrection. At first, he said, Oh, these are. It's Antifa. No, it's your people. Uh, well, maybe they care a little more about this than you do. Like, it'd be great to hear from Kevin McCarthy about that, uh, if we could get him to tell the truth. Or Mark Meadows, who, yeah. you know, was at the heart of all of this, is, you know, in and out of all of these rooms. Uh, so she's kind of inviting them in with this, you know, the dam is beginning to break. Uh, it's the same way that prosecutors, you know, talk to cooperators like, oh, well, you know, we got someone in the door. The, the prisoner's <laughs> dilemma. Yeah, you're, you know, your, your buddy's talking over there. Maybe you want to talk too. We have to transition now to the bonus, the bonus portion of the uh, podcast. I want to help people because I think people continue to need help. And we touched on this earlier, but uh, Merrick Garland spoke in strong tones this week. And I was really pleased to hear it. I think, I think Rachel Maddow described it as the equivalent of of one of us screaming, but Merrick Garland (laughs) having raised his voice slightly this week and saying, we are going to get everybody that has done something criminal. I I still think that no matter how many times he says it, average folks want to see what I have just started to describe as Trump camouflage, which is an orange jumpsuit. We want to see him in that. And but we must wait for Christmas. Let me mix as many uh, analogies as I can, as many metaphors as I can. I mean, (laughs) Um, can you just qu- quickly explain for us at ho- for the for the viewer at home who's baking cookies um, the different approaches that the DOJ has to this and the January sixth committee? So you know the committee is trying to just tell the whole story and maybe identify gaps in the law where they can make some changes to prevent this from happening again. It's been very one sided. We have only heard from friendly witnesses. They have only shown us little clips that they want to show us. You know, 
Pat Cipollone testified for eight hours and we've seen maybe eight minutes of that testimony. You know, what else did he say? No one is cross-examining these witnesses to try to expose their lack of firsthand knowledge, what that which is hearsay, biases that they may harbor. So all of that would happen in a trial. The other thing is proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt to a unanimous jury of 12 strangers, some of whom are likely Trump supporters, is really, really hard. And it's intended to be really, really hard. Beyond a reasonable doubt, you have to be satisfied that there is no you know, innocent explanation for any of this or a plausible legal theory. You know, I, I feel like they're getting there, but what that requires really is that you disprove the negative. You have to mm-hmm. anticipate any possible defense. John Eastman was telling me that this was a plausible legal theory and I believed him. And so I was simply trying to effectuate that. Is mm-hmm. there any good faith argument that could be made there that would absolve him of the criminal intent necessary to prosecute him for any of these crimes, like obstruction of an official proceeding or a conspiracy to defraud the United States or seditious conspiracy? You know, you can't have that Perry Mason moment where the doors burst <laughs> open and someone walks in and says, I did it, you know, and they peel off the rubber mask and it's Jared. You, know? um, you can't have that, you know, that moment. And what that requires really is talking to all of these people, either interviewing them for hours and hours or putting them in the grand jury to lock in that testimony. But before you do any of that, what you want to do is exploit all documents, including communications. And so the first step is grabbing all the phones, all the computers, all the text messages, some of which we have learned have now mysteriously disappeared, to read because you can learn a lot. And it, it gives you the ability to confront people with their admissions. And it also gives you the ability to prevent people from trying to snow you. Like, no, you know, I got you comms right here. You don't lie to me. I I know what you said. So that's really important to have all of that first. And that takes a lot of time, especially when you have attorneys involved, like a Giuliani, because you have to go through a privilege review or Mm. even Mark Meadows, you have to go through, you know, a privilege review for executive privilege. They're probably talking about things like, you know, I hope they're not texting about the nuclear codes, but they're (laughs) talking about things that are way beyond the scope of this that are entitled to privilege uh, that you can't get. And so somebody has to review all that. It just takes a lot, a lot of time. And you mentioned Christmas, dear listeners, I don't <laughs> expect charges until if, if they come until well into 2023. It just takes a long, long time. And so I think some of the frustration we see is people thinking like, I can see this in broad daylight, Merrick Garland, how can you not have charged this yet? But it's all that other stuff, all the garbage. I mean, look at Steve Bannon even, you know, that like, you know, he's- <laughs> Do I have to? Yeah, yeah, no, maybe don't look at him. Um, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, look at her trial. She was uh, uh, the, the case in Michigan against men who plotted to kidnap her, to put her on trial for violating their liberties by entering COVID shutdown orders. Hung jury. Two of the jurors weren't convinced that this is a crime. Whoa, that's what you're up against. And so you need to make sure it is really buttoned down, that there is no way to just sort of throw a little magic dust in there to convince one juror that, you know, there's some plausible defense here. And so that just takes an awful lot of time. So I'd be stunned if they can do it in calendar year 2022. I think we're looking at 2023. And I think it's got to be by then, because if you get into 2024, now you're getting into an election year. If Trump announces Mm -hmm. a campaign, you've got these election year sensitivities that you have to avoid. And there's the risk that Trump runs out the clock. And even though you charge him during 2023 or 2024, there's a new administration in 2025 that dismisses the charges. So right. I, think, I think 2023 is the magic year. So the thing that we should be doing is sleeping more easily at night instead of worrying 
that nothing's going to be done. We should be sleeping easily because people are working at heart, working hard in the Department of Justice. Well, I don't know that it equates to sleeping easily because I do think there are still forces that are going attacking our democracy. As Liz Cheney said yesterday, you know, you can't have truth uh, and you can't have freedom and uh, lies. You have to choose one. And so there's still people who are supporting this big lie and there are still politicians who support it like Kevin McCarthy and others. So I do think that right. it's, we can't, we, we need to be, be vigilant and try to beat back this, this whole, you know, disinformation army that is out there. But I do think with regard to the Justice Department, it was important for Merrick Garland to come out. It seems like he needs to come out from under his rock every few months and remind people that we're still here and we're still looking at this. And I do think that that has maybe been a flaw of his that, you know, he was at the Justice Department in the 90s and did a great job there. You know, he worked on, Mm -hmm. he led the Oklahoma City domestic terrorism case against uh, Timothy McVeigh. But I think the world has changed and perhaps Mm -hmm. he has been unaware of that and perhaps he's learning that. People just don't trust that you're the government and you're there to do your job and you'll act with integrity and you'll act with diligence. I think the Trump administration has really poisoned people on government. And I think it is a new age. And I think you do need to reassure people more often. And I think he did it just right. You know, no one's above the law. We are working to hold accountable anyone who tried to upend our election you know, in, in getting beyond the attack itself. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought he made that clear. So, but it, he probably needs to come out about once a month and remind people about that. And that wouldn't be bad. Even if he just repeated what he said, look, hey, we're still here. We're still working on it. We <laughs> we're get still, it. working wow. hard. Exactly. Yeah. I'm going to go back into the cave now. Yeah. Right. I think, I think maybe people need that reassurance. I think it's changed. I agree with you. I think we all need some reassurance because I think there's been so much tumult and upheaval in our lives from Roe disappearing into the wind yes. and, you know, that we need some sort of sense of normalcy or things are working as they should. If you had your opportunity, there was one person that you could pick to um, personally talk to, like you end up sitting next to them on the train involved in this January 6th hoo-ha. Is there somebody you'd really like to talk to, to give some truth serum to? And yeah, I mean, lawyers have sort of magical, you have your own ways Uh of evoking Uh, the truth. I don't know if I do, but the best FBI agents I ever worked with were not like the tough guy, Tommy Lee Jones guys. They were the chatterboxes. They could get you going about anything like these, you know, these people, just great conversationalists who like have all day and they'll chat you up. If I could get, I can think of one particular agent. If I could get him, I would have him sit next to Mark Meadows. He knows where the bodies are buried. And remember he cooperated for a little while and they did get some of his text messages and then it changed. And now it seems like he's gone all in on the big lie. You know, he went down to Mar-a-Lago and they've served him some Kool-Aid and like he's not, he, the trance has not yet worn off, but he knows he, he was the one who was in and out of the Oval Office or the, I guess it was the dining room. We heard from Cassie Hutchinson, you know, he says he doesn't want to do anything. He said, oh, it, it might get bad on January 6th, Cass, it might get real bad. What did he know? So he knows everything. He knows what the plans were. He even called in. Remember, it was Hutchinson who said, you're not going to this meeting at the Willard Hotel on January 5th, for the love of God, are you? Do like, oh, you think that would look bad? Uh, okay, I guess I'll call in. So he called in to you know, Giuliani and Stone and Flynn, who are plotting whatever evil they were cooking up that night. So you know, he's the one I'd want to talk to. Okay, but I like the idea of getting the chatterbox FBI guy. Like yeah, that's a skill. He did, he did that it. man has skills. Oh, he, he'd get it out of them. With, with sweetness, you know, with syrup. And they, they'd be old buds. Like, you know, they, even after the conviction, he'd still believe that he's his best friend. 
<laughs> they'd still send Christmas cards. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is it me or is there sort of a, and this is a very long question, uh, a very long, I'm sure there's a long answer involved. So I'm going to ask you just for the quick off your cuff answer, which is there's a certain arrogance to me that has been coming out of the Supreme Court lately. I wonder what you make of that. To me, it's an arrogance. This like there is a is there ever black and white in law, really? Justice, I think it was Sotomayor wrote in a dissenting opinion in Dobbs. Or may, you know what? It might have been Kagan now that I think about it. I think it might have been Kagan. Anyway, one of them wrote recently, power not reasoning, not reasoning has become the new currency of this court. No. Ooh, that <laughs> is pretty, that's pretty interesting. And I think that is similar to your observation, which is, you know, none of this really is following the normal course of following precedent, stare decisis, legal reasoning. We're doing what we want to do just because we can. And I do think that is arrogance. And I think it's really damaging. And I think it is what we are seeing with people like Kevin McCarthy and Mark Meadows, which is this idea that the ends justify the means. I think even William Barr with, as you mentioned, you know, forming his organization, it's all about the ends justifying the means, which is just the opposite of what lawyers believe and what the rule of law is, Mm -hmm. that it's all about process. And that if you have good process, you will get to the right ends because you have democracy and you have laws. The ends justifying the means means whoever is in power just gets to choose. That's authoritarianism. That is not democracy. And so it does, it does worry me that there is, there are so many people who are so convinced that what they think is right, that they are willing to trample over this idea of the rule of law and process and reasoning. I agree with you. I I find it sort of, I guess, terrifying is the word that there are Supreme Court justices who will do this because, you know, I, like I say, I have this naivete and I'm like, well, of course they're going to look at both sides of something, but all of a sudden they're not. And it's, I mean, not all of a sudden, but they're not. And that is very disconcerting to me. One other really important question and this, I was looking through your, um, I guess your Twitter feed in the, you know, deep, profound kind of journalistic depth that I go to. (laughs) And I saw, I, you know, I also review restaurants and I have done deep dives on things like ice cream in the state of New Jersey. And mm. I saw you mention something called a deep dive in ice cream in New Jersey is very possible. And there's delicious stuff here. But you mentioned something called the Washtenaw Dairy. Yes. <laughs> and I, I, I like was like, well, tell me more about it. They've been around forever. Do you, do you get ice cream there or is it the donut? Both. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's a terrific little place and it has been around for a very long time. It is here in Ann Arbor. And what I like about it is it's, a, it's very old school, enormous hmm. dishes of ice cream or cones for a reasonable price and delicious, but very basic donuts, like your very basic little cake donut. You know, it's not, a, sometimes you see these donuts are like, you know, the Oreo cookie double fudge uh, donut is <laughs> not that, you know, you, those, those have their place. This is, and there's, you know, they're also, uh, this is just like the basic little kind of cider mill style donut, but delicious. Mm-hmm. We also have these, uh, you know, kind of artisanal ice cream places, which I also like, you know, don't get me wrong. There are some really wonderful high-end ice cream places, but this is the place where we would take our kids, you know, after the the t-ball game and, okay. you know, you'd go there with all the kids in part because it's inexpensive. But there's a real Americana vibe to it that I just love. And, you know, anytime you go there, you'll find 
the t-ball team or the soccer team and you know the parents and uh, the cone is dripping and uh it's just great it's a great joint and uh you know for all all of those reasons it uh, it, it is a place i consider fondly but the ice cream is good too they serve <laughs> a detroit staple stro brand ice cream and so i think the ice cream is good and they pile it high that's the best that is the best yeah. and i think we need a little bit of that one final question as a mother of four do you feel that your legal training helps you? Oh, absolutely. You can cross-examine <laughs> kids all the time. Yeah. You know, the only problem is after a while they get wise to you and they use your own tactics on you. Uh, you know, like, oh, wait, the, you know, prior inconsistent statement. But yesterday you said the reason we need to do this was X. And today you're saying the reason is Y. Which is it? When you're lying then or you're lying now? Like, damn, shouldn't train them so well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good tips for all of us. Um, thank you very much for your time. And um, I know you have a busy day ahead. Um, and I look forward to listening to the Sisters-in-Law podcast today. And we have cookies for Joyce. I do want to point out that there are some really nice looking cookies here for Joyce. Uh, well, that's, that's so, so nice. And thank you, Marissa. You know, and we, we've talked in advance that I am not a cook or a baker at all. I am, um, you know, viciously anti my ever <laughs> cooking or baking, but I do love to eat them. So although I'm very happy that you made cookies for Joyce on her birthday, I yeah. hope that someday you might have uh, an opening in your schedule to bake some <laughs> cookies for me because I will eat them with joy. Thank you so much to Barbara McQuaid. Thank you so much to you, the listener, for spending your time with us. I truly appreciate it with all my heart. Thank you. You can follow me on my Substack at marissarothkoff.substack.com for all the recipes that you hear in this Secret Life podcast. And there's also will be extra content there. So thank you and keep on being kind.